If you have a copy of God's Word, the first scripture that we're going to look at is going to be at the end of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 22. So take some time and head that way. While you do, I'll remind you where we've been and then let you know where we're going this morning. We have been in a series on the way of Jesus. You can see from the slide behind me, the slides to either side of the stage, that this is our uh, sixth principle, our sixth concept. It's actually week seven because it took us two weeks to get through one of the parts of this series, which is great. We were able to really dig in. But this week we'll be discussing Jesus, our brother, and what that means is we'll be learning from Jesus what community means. What does it mean to be in relationship, first with him, and then with one another? Our big idea for the past six weeks has been this, that apprentices of Jesus structure their lives, which probably means some of us have some decisions to make in the coming months and years. Apprentices of Jesus structure their lives around three objectives. You've seen these over and over again. You're going to keep seeing them. I hope that you'll have them memorized sooner than later. The first is that we want to belong to Jesus. We want to behold him. We want a front row seat to who he is and what he's doing. And we want to become like him as a result of that. He is our rabbi. We are his apprentices. As a part of being formed into the image of Jesus, we've been doing some legwork the last few weeks to specifically discuss how people become who they're becoming. How does that work? How does your mind and your heart and your spirit, your body, your soul, the things the Bible says that you have, how do those things cooperate and participate together to turn you into somebody different from who you are today? Last week, I gave you some homework, and I just want to remind you, we're not going to work all our way back through this, but I asked you if you would consider participating in what we call a formation audit. A formation audit is a simple concept. It comes from a book by a guy named James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love, and it's an opportunity for you to identify a rhythm or a habit or a routine that you have, to pull that rhythm, habit, or routine out even just for one day and replace it with a spiritual discipline, and then just look at the results. Not fake it and come and lie to your life group that it was amazing and you had this vision of being in heaven with Jesus and all your problems are gone and all your sicknesses are healed, but just talk about what it was like. If you didn't like it, if it was boring, if you seemed disconnected from it, it was really life-giving maybe or peaceful or helpful. We just want you to begin to kind of tinker and play. We think we have a lot of uh, room to do that as Christians within the grace of God and we certainly don't want to do anything wrong on purpose, but we have the opportunity to begin to evaluate, to look in the mirror and not just absorb the teaching that's happening on Sunday, but start taking some steps. So uh, I hope you'll come along for the ride with that. In the next couple of weeks, I'll start filling you in on how I've been going through this process and hopefully be able to kind of lead you a little bit along the way, but I'm I'm hoping and praying that you'll start talking about these things in life group, uh, etc. The way that we're formed consists of at least five concepts, five principles. And we've said that there are two kind of versions of formation in the world. There's one that happens to us, and then there's one that we participate in. We've called the one that happens to us static formation, and what we mean by that is all you have to do is wake up tomorrow, and five different things are going to be attacking you from every angle, getting into your head, getting into your heart, changing your practices and habits, and forming you into someone who is objectively different from who you are today. The other paradigm is what you can do about those five things. It's the way that you participate in the life of Jesus, what we've called the way of Jesus, not independently of his spirit, totally and completely plugged into God's spirit, submitting to him, and of course, only after you've given your life to Jesus. You've actually said to your rabbi what a Talmudim in the ancient Near Eastern world would say to their rabbi. Yes, I will follow you anywhere, even if it means dropping my nets right here, even if it means walking away from the family that I've lived with forever. Whatever God might call you to, out of your comfort zone, into his mercy and leadership, That would be step one. And then you just try to follow him. You just live into that. So those five factors, as a brief review, are teaching. That's the first thing that we need, is we need the teaching of Jesus, and that teaching runs counter to the stories that our culture and society tell us are true. The second is practice. That's where we were last week. And we need the practices of Jesus. We need to turn that teaching into actual, tangible steps 
Otherwise, the habits and the routines and the cycles that we already live in will begin to overwhelm that teaching. Just having the head knowledge won't work for us. We've tried that for a long time, and it hasn't produced the fruit that we want. Today, we'll be looking at the third factor, which is community, and we'll be holding community up against our human idea of relationships. I've said to you several different times so far that I define community as the people we inherit from Jesus. It's helpful to me to be chewing on and grasping it that way. Our relationships are the people that we pick, the people who we take the time to decide if we like before we extend our life and and bring their life into ours. Oftentimes, community, it's the reverse order. We receive those people from the Lord, then we figure out we might not like them, and then we have to make a decision to find a way to treat them like we do, and then lo and behold, when those practices come into play, those relationships bear fruit. Next week, we'll be looking at the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. Who is he? What role does he play in our formation? And how does he run counter to the lived environment that we're all in all the time? We're going to be talking a lot next week about your cell phone, about the digital world that you are constantly immersed in. We'll touch on that a little bit today because it runs counter to community. But the digital pace at which we move is the primary enemy of any of us living our Christianity in a way that is spiritual. And then finally, where we'll be in two weeks, our spiritual realities, what Dallas Willard calls the concrete reality of the present kingdom of God, and that runs counter to our experiences, that we have a new way to understand what is happening and why it is happening. Instead of panicking every time we turn the news on, we're able to sort of bring this high theory to the news, to the world, and critique it and say, okay, that may be true for somebody somewhere sometime, but I'm found in Christ. I belong to him. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So today is community. If you've been taking notes chronologically, you may want to go to a new page. I'm going to share five principles with you this morning. We're going to spend quite a bit of time in Scripture, and I have a handful of what I think will be very helpful insights and quotes from people smarter than me. So let's start with one of those. In 2017, a man named Andy Crouch wrote a great little handbook that's called The Tech Wise Family. If it's not already on your reading list, I commend it to you. If you are a person who has little kids or who plans to have children at some point or you're in the midst of fostering or adopting, or frankly, if your children are grown and grandchildren are about to enter the picture for you, any one of you, it would be a great read for you. Uh, Crouch lays out 10 principles that he says the TechWise family will hold to. They're not laws. You don't have to take all of them. You can just take some, whatever works for your family. Uh, But they're extremely helpful in just kind of understanding what technology is doing to us. In his latest book, which just came out a few weeks ago, it's called The Life That We're Looking For, Andy Crouch comments on the relational and emotional effect of the late modern digital age, which if you didn't know, that's the time period that you live in. Uh, It's having an effect on us. Here's what he says. He says, the defining emotional challenge of our time is anxiety. The fear of what might be instead of the courageous pursuit of what could be. Once we lived with allness of heart, with a boldness of quest that was too in love with the good to call off the pursuit when we encountered risk. I'm going to read this to you slowly. Now we live as voyeurs, pursuing shadowy vestiges of what we desire from behind the one-way mirror of a screen, invulnerable but alone. Think about the closing line of that quote. Invulnerable, but alone. Nothing can get to me. Nothing can hurt me. You can't hurt me. You don't know who I really am. You don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done wrong. But in order to keep all of you out and away, I have to isolate. There is no way to truly have a human relationship without revealing who I actually am to you. Over and over again in Crouch's book, he contrasts the idea of being personal versus living in a world that is personalized. 
Uh, Tyler Wolf can tell you, I read him an excerpt on Thursday morning that probably is still haunting him now. Yeah, he went home and took all of his children's tablets away as soon as I read the quote to him. So just, you know, tread lightly with the book. I think it's good and helpful and right. It is uh, pretty heavy at different points. When I think about invulnerable but alone, I can't think of an idea that more perfectly opposes what Jesus is doing in each of us. I think being invulnerable but alone has nothing to do with the way of Jesus. In fact, I would argue that it's the opposite of the way that Jesus is trying to lead and guide us. If you've been around True North for a year or more, you've probably heard us talk about life groups at different points. And the language that we use for our life groups is that we want to know and be known. To know and be known. I want to take that concept and I want to just try to draw it out as a principle for you in a way that can apply not only to your life group here at True North, but as God may lead you and take you other places, I know several members of our church are just about to PCS again and go to another location with the military. I just want to give you a tool that will help you. When you kind of evaluate what is community, what am I looking for, what is God drawing me into, uh, this is the first principle. This is what I want you to grasp. Covenant community does two things. It reveals and it reminds. It reveals and it reminds. When we say that we want to know and be known, that language centers on the idea of revealing ourselves to one another, of making a choice to pull the curtain back and show people who you really are under the surface, underneath all of kind of the achievements that you have earned and your financial status and your happy family with your kids that never do anything wrong, right? Is your life group like mine? I'm just kidding. Our, our kids tear the walls out of the buildings that we're in oftentimes in our life group, so maybe your life group is neater than mine is. But oftentimes, we, we trick ourselves into thinking that revealing who we really are is maybe reserved for a spouse, or it's reserved for a therapist, right? We want somebody to have enough degrees on the wall that they're not going to run away as soon as we tell them the deep, dark truth about ourselves. When the reality for you and I is the first model, the most basic version of what it means to be a disciple involved community from day one. When Jesus initially called his disciples, he called them out into a group. There was no way for the 12 of them to follow him without spending time with each other. And not just spending time, but being around when each other had stomach aches, hearing each other's bad takes on politics, listening to each other ramble on and on and on and on about the latest book that they read and why they love it, which is a lot of what my life group has to deal with. These people were, yes, following Christ, but as they followed him, they slowly found themselves more and more in step with each other. That doesn't mean that they became photocopies of each other. Their objective was to become as much like Jesus as possible, but as they did that, as they lived that life, yes, they took on his traits and qualities, but they also found themselves closer to each other than they would have ever been naturally without compromising their individuality. You see, the way that a cult does community is it tells everybody that they have to wear all the same clothes and shave their heads and do everything exactly the same. That's not helpful. The way that Jesus does community is he says, follow me and who I made you will finally be in sync with who you're becoming and you'll do that in the presence of other people and it will be exponentially more effective in your life if there are people around you for this process. The Gospels are full of examples of Jesus' 12 apostles being sexist, racist, impatient, dishonest, short-tempered, violent, cheap, insensitive. The list goes on and on and on. And what I want you to try to grasp is it's not how perfect another person is that decides and dictates whether you should open your life to them. It's whether or not they've said with their mouth and believed in their heart, Christ is my Lord. That's all you're waiting for. When you find a person who has made a verbal commitment that represents the commitment of the weight of their life onto Jesus' mercy, that is a person with whom you can share your life. 
And I would argue that if you're resisting that pull, you may have identified in that resistance the thing that's keeping you from moving forward in your faith. Oftentimes we want to just ingest more teaching, but we want to do it in the quiet of our bedroom with our headphones in with nobody around us. Or we'd like to walk out certain practices, but we tend to lean toward the ones that are more isolated. You guys remember the the axes of disciplines that we talked about last week? Those uh, disciplines that happen alone are the ones that kind of draw some of us in. We have an appetite for silence and being at peace and resting, and so we just kind of do all the stuff we would have done anyway to avoid people. We just pray at the beginning and then tell Jesus and ourselves that we're doing it for him, but we really just don't want to talk to anybody today. That's the bottom line. We have to resist the urge to tell ourselves that the Christian life can be lived in isolation. The temptation in the story that the world wants us to believe is to quote Andy Crouch, we live behind the one-way mirror of a screen, and we do so willingly. We devalue our relationships to the point that we confuse connectivity, connectedness, which is another concept from the TechWise family, with community, and they're not the same thing. Having lots of circles that you run around in online, giving and taking text messages, those are not things that you have to eliminate to follow Jesus, but they do not do what a face-to-face conversation does. They cannot do that for you. They cannot shortcut that process. We have to choose to reveal ourselves to one another. And we have to remember that in doing that, that's not where our hope comes from, but community will become transformative when we remind each other of who Jesus is. That's where this becomes really helpful to us. First, I reveal who I am. I say to you, this last week, I have done X, Y, and Z things Not to confess to you a laundry list of every sin, but to communicate general themes in my life that I'm dealing with. I yelled at my daughter and heard my father's words come out of my mouth. I passed judgment on somebody at work uh, because of the way that they smelled. Without taking any time to know them at all, I thought, if they had any decency, they wouldn't come around here like that. I was impatient with my family because I allowed the burdens of church to overwhelm my personhood. These are the kinds of things that would come up in my life group that I would share with you if we sat around a dinner table a couple times a month. But we share those things not to score moral points. We then need the community to do what we cannot do for ourselves. The community around us hears all those things and acknowledges them. It doesn't dismiss them and sweep them away and say, oh, well, God loves you and you don't have to worry about any of that. Our community says, I need to let you know what Jesus has done for people like you, specifically for people like you, people who are impatient, people who are judgmental, people who get out of control because they think they're doing this big, amazing, important thing at work, and so they neglect their family. Those kinds of people Jesus has words for, and that's where my community does what I can't do. I cannot self-diagnose, and I cannot self-medicate. I need other people to bring the scriptures and the words of Jesus back to me, not to ignore what is wrong, but to remind me of how those wrongs will be made right in Christ. That's my hope. So I would argue that covenant community is really the the fertilizer, it's the soil in which preaching, teaching, that's one category, and practice bear fruit. You can hear great teaching, you can try to walk it out on your own, you will fail in between seven to ten days every single time if you're doing it by yourself. When our community reminds us that we belong to Jesus, when our community invites us to behold Jesus once again, when our community becomes like Jesus alongside of us, then our community becomes transformative. Covenant community reveals and reminds. Here's your second principle. Covenant community is non-negotiable. So I've tried to appeal to you why you should take it seriously. Now I'm going to try to explain to you why you can't afford not to. There is no such thing as an independent Christian. So I'm going to let that sit on you for a second. I would argue there's really no such thing as an independent church. So sorry if you grew up in the independent Baptist movement. I have a few thoughts about how that's gone and if it's been effective and helpful or not. But let's just think about the individual Christian for a minute. It's not a concept that the Bible has a category for. There there is no model in the New Testament for a follower of Jesus who's flying solo, who's on their own. 
I don't know if you've ever grasped this before, but even in the narrative portions of the New Testament, take the gospel, or the, not the gospel, the book of Acts, for example. In the book of Acts, every single time that a church planter is sent out, that an apostle travels around the Mediterranean world, that a person is sent from church to church with money and an encouraging letter, they never go alone. They don't even walk the roads by themselves. And you could argue that that's to keep bandits off their back, but I would say there are greater threats to you and I than being robbed on the road in the road of our culture. We need somebody next to us even worse than somebody who's carrying a bag of gold coins and an encouraging letter. We need people next to us because the roads we walk are full of perils. They're full of things that want to tempt us and draw us away to the right or the left instead of keeping our eyes on Christ and moving forward together. True North Church is a large covenant community, but it is made up of smaller communities, and we call those life groups. We seek to know one another. We seek to be known by one another in that context. And we call ourselves a covenant people because God's people have always been bound under covenants, covenants that instruct them in how to be a community together. So this is a rub point for certain people, and I just want to be clear here. The idea of covenant existing between people who are in community is not designed to be exclusive to those who are not ready to take that step yet. It is a safety net. It is a guardian um, object in the life of those who are being honest with each other. If I have covenanted with you and we meet regularly in our group to, to reveal who we are, to remind each other who Jesus is, if I'm participating in that, that covenant lets me know I can pour everything out to you and you're not going to immediately text my friend at work that I had a judgmental thought about them. Right? You're not going to walk away into your weekly Bible study with a gathering of men or women or whoever and turn all the gossip that I just shared with you into prayer requests so that you can make sure everybody else knows all my dirty laundry. Because we are covenanted together, I trust that the words I share with you, which are representative of my being, are safe. That's why we like that covenant. We think it's very positive. Jesus ended his ministry by sealing the values and the principles of God's kingdom with a new covenant. This is a groundbreaking act for our rabbi to take. And by looking at his model, we believe we find the right model for us as well. So I asked you to go to Luke 22. Let's read now beginning in verse 19. You might have to turn the page from where you are. Uh, this is the very, very end of Jesus' life. It's the last round of teaching that he's offering to his disciples before he'll die. And it's a point where his betrayer, Judas, has not yet left and done the deed of betrayal. So all 12 are still together. There's probably lots more disciples in the city of Jerusalem for the Passover. But there are these 12 gathered together for one final Passover meal, a meal that they've celebrated with Jesus at least twice before in his ministry. And he changes the game on them kind of out of nowhere. Look at verse 19. And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them, the twelve. And he said this, This is my body which is given for you, so do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, and he said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now just pause for a second. That is language that we are pretty familiar with if we are church people. We have heard new covenant in my blood. We hear it about once a month when we get together and partake in the Lord's Supper and do this thing in remembrance of him. But if you are an ancient Near Eastern Israelite man who grew up memorizing the stories of God's covenants in the Old Testament, this is a big claim. This is possibly a larger and harder to understand claim than Jesus even claiming to be one with God prior to this point. For him to say that he has the authority to rewrite the rules of the relationship between God and people I mean, that's the kind of thing that if he said it publicly would have sent him to the cross if God's people had not already decided to do that to him anyway. So that's a huge deal. That should shock everybody in the room. 
some of them should probably fall out of their chairs. Well, I guess in Israel, they're sitting on the ground, but they should fall further onto the ground in shock, unbelievable, stomach hurt, head spinning. What does this mean? How could this be? But watch what actually happens. So he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, verse 21. He's still speaking. But look, that's what behold means. It's like him snapping his fingers. Look, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Okay, Jesus has just zoomed from this massive, universe-divining new covenant, whatever that even means that he's talking about, down to a group of real people in a room together. And he's saying, look around you. One of you who is here is going to betray me. The hand of him is on the table. All the disciples are like looking, like, is my, my hands are in my pockets. It's not me. I'm not doing it. Verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And how do the disciples react? The twelve, the closest twelve. They began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Now, the way the Bible is written in English there, that sounds a little bit like they just sort of had a gentle Q&A around the table. I think they were freaking out. I would like to think that if Peter was willing to draw a sword just a few hours later to attack a guy who came to arrest Jesus, his hand is at least on his hilt at this point. And he's looking around like, which of you suckers needs to go down? You're not taking Jesus. It's not going to happen. I just told him that where he goes, I'm going. And he told me I can't, but I don't care. I know better, and I'm going with him. And y'all are going to have to take me out. Like, I think there's immediately palpable tension, and it's a little bit violent because of who these guys are. These are not clean-cut uh, temple boys. These are men that worked with their hands, muscular. Some of them probably don't even wear a shirt most of the time. They've got the big anchor, right, the Jewish anchor tattoo over their heart. Mom on this side, the anchor. Peter's got his sword. These guys are rough. And in this moment, the human emotion of what Jesus says last totally overshadows this massive cosmos-changing promise that he's just made about a new covenant. Jesus has bound his apprentices together in this room in the ultimate induction ceremony. He's bringing them into the new kingdom with him in a way that no human being has experienced since Adam and Eve. Jesus is saying, we're going back there. He claims to prepare to give every part of himself to the point of death in order to see his vision for the church become reality. And I like this commentary. Dallas Willard says this about the kind of community that God builds with his people. He says, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons, with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and its most glorious inhabitant. That's what Jesus is handing out. That's the magnitude of this new covenant that he brings forward. He's saying to his disciples, you may now have a deep and abiding awareness of God in the tiniest minutia of your life. God will go with you into the pantry to try to find another onion so you can finish the recipe. God will go with you under the car to dislodge the basketball that your child cannot seem to keep in the bucket. God will go with you as you have to have yet another abscessed tooth removed because you forget to brush your teeth at night. God will go with you in those tiny moments. He'll be with you in the boardroom. He'll be with you over the dishes. He'll be with you in the minivan. That is the level of what Jesus is revealing, but what do his disciples hear him say? One of y'all is going to kill me. That's all they hear. And they flip, they freak out, they miss the new covenant totally. And in this way to me, the Bible begins to read us, not just Jesus' disciples. I see myself at the table. I hear all of God's great ideas. I hear teaching week after week of how there's practices and I'm going to begin these spiritual disciplines and I'm already starting to tell my journal, I think I might go with fasting for a couple days a week just to see what's going to happen. But I lose grasp, if I'm not careful, of the universe level of God's plan and the love that flows out of that plan to all of us, not just to me. I am always tempted to become an individual in church. I am always tempted to only see myself as an individual when I read God's word. 
I'm only tempted to believe that the disciplines are for me, or maybe at most for me and my spouse. And yet what Jesus is ushering in in Luke 22 is a clear picture of a communal kingdom. It is for everybody at the table. And by extension, because of where the Spirit will lead those men to plant churches, it will be for all people. Anybody who would believe. That's the magnitude of this new covenant. And yet, immediately, the disciples look around and go, oh no, am I the bad disciple? Is it me? Is it me? And we're like that. We sit in church, we go to life group, we try to participate in community, and we are so hyper-focused on me, each of us on our own self, that oftentimes we miss the grand, sweeping scope of what God wants to do in community for us. I do not believe that God's best plan for your life is that you become the absolute smartest or strongest willed or purest of heart Christian in a vacuum by yourself. I believe that the maximum apprenticeship to Jesus is only available to you if you will participate in that with other people. I really believe that. And I will just tell you as a person who does pretty good in one-on-one conversations and can stand in a room like this with a few hundred people and not really break a sweat, I struggle with two to 12 people. I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm bad. I'm really bad in small groups. Everybody is talking faster than I want to. I can't keep up with them. I really value words, so I get stuck on the literal meaning of what everybody is saying, and then I get offended because a person said something that was just a joke, but I don't know that it was, and so I try to maybe joke back, but I don't smile when I joke, so now they're offended because they don't really understand my sarcasm. I mean, I just make it gross to the point that sometimes I just have to sort of like pull the emergency break and take five minutes in the bathroom and just let everybody forget that I was there and that I was constantly putting my feet in my mouth and I'll come back out and try again. It's hard for me. I am an introvert. My preference would be to have one best friend and then to tell you guys what God's word says. But the call on my life as an apprentice of Jesus is to go with you. And it's not you specific people. It doesn't really matter who the human beings are. I just don't like a small group. It's not fun for me. I don't look forward to it. I have some of the greatest people in this church, in my life group, super committed, love my family, show up when we're in need, support us really well. Let us just be people instead of me having to be the pastor when I meet with that group. And yet, it's a challenge every time. It is, for me, a discipline. But it is a discipline with which I cannot negotiate because there has never in the entire history of the church been an individual disciple. From day one, the disciples were in community. Listen to these verses from Mark chapter one. You heard me quote verses 14 and 15 like a hundred times in the last six weeks. This is what happens right after that. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon, who is called Peter later on in the story, and Andrew, the brother of Peter, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. That's where you would expect them to be. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men instead of fish. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And they were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately Jesus called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. Now, this is very early in the book of Mark. God's kingdom has been announced by Jesus He's covenanted it into perpetuity, right? We saw him do that in Luke 22 at the end of his ministry. But at the end of day one of the way of Jesus, the opening morning, the grand opening of this new way to be human, Jesus finishes the day with at least four apprentices. There is no point in the way of Jesus where there is ever an individual alone, isolated, following him one-on-one. It does not exist. And the concept that we draw from that is that covenant community is non-negotiable. The third principle I want you to grab is that covenant community is in our spiritual genetics. It's in our spiritual genetics. If you don't like the word genetics, you can write DNA. That's up to you. 
Jesus' apprentices were more than students who could memorize his words. And they were more than understudies who could emulate his body language and his tone of voice. They became family to him. Family, true spiritual family on the earth, a new kind of family. And in addition to being a new kind of family, they are also the model for modern apprentices of Jesus today. As men and women who not only heard Jesus' teaching, but who sought to put that teaching into practice, they became closer to Jesus than even his own biological family. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus was teaching a group of Hebrews using stories, what the Bible calls parables. And his mother Mary, his true biological mother Mary, the same Mary from that bad song that we sing at Christmas, right? Mary, did you know? She did. That's the answer to that question. Some of his siblings, they come by. They come by to see him. Maybe they brought him lunch, a sandwich. We don't know what's going on. But they can't get to him. The crowd is too dense and they cannot get all the way to where he is. And so they send a messenger up through the crowd, probably a little kid who could kind of slip between everybody's legs. And this is what happens. Look at Luke 8, verse 19 through 21. Then his mother, Jesus' mother and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And so he was told, a messenger came and told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. In other words, Jesus, can you just take a break from what you're doing with these apprentices and come and see your mom? Give her a hug and a kiss, right? Especially maybe it was Mother's Day like it is today. Here's Jesus' answer. Not a great answer to give on Mother's Day, verse 21. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And that doesn't mean that his biological mom and siblings can't be a part of that group. But the prerequisite to being family with Jesus is not biology, which is great news for us because we're not connected to him biologically. None of us are. The prerequisite to being family with Jesus is teaching, right? Hearing the word of God and practice and doing it. Hear and do it. Listen and follow. Watch and learn. Behold me and then become like me is what Jesus is saying. If you will do that, then you will be more than an apprentice. You will be family. We will have the relationship of a mother and child or a brother among his siblings. Covenant community is in our spiritual genetics. Now, hearing the teaching of Jesus and putting it into practice, which is where we've been the last two weeks, that's kind of the meat and potatoes of community with Jesus with each other. And so this brings us to principle four, that covenant community is the context for teaching and practice. It's the context. What this means is, Engaging in great teaching outside of the context of a local church is not apprenticeship to Jesus. So I'm just going to say that to you one more time, and I'm going to say it as plain as I possibly can using evangelical language for you. If you are only podcasting sermons, which you're here, I know you're in the room, but I'm just going to give you this principle for life. If you are only podcasting sermons at a church that you have never attended, full of people you've never met, that's not discipleship. It's not. It's learning. It's learning. And you can learn a lot, and that would be great. And there are great men far smarter than me and better spoken and better researched and older and more experienced. I shaved my beard last night, and I look like I'm 15. So you're probably thinking, do I want to follow this guy? I don't know. Does he have his driver's license yet? I'm not sure. Did his mom drop him off today? Okay, there's other better preachers than me. That's great. That's fine. Consume those things, but call that what it is. That's learning from teaching. That's not discipleship. Discipleship requires that you be rooted among a body. You have to be. No doubt... The disciples of Jesus, as they traveled through Galilee and heard other rabbis teaching, picked up great ideas and positive principles from those men. No doubt. There were rabbis all over Galilee in Jesus' day, calling out apprentices to follow them, telling them, you're my Talmudim now, come and emulate me. Of course they heard great teaching. They probably heard great rabbinical commentaries on the scriptures in the synagogues every Sunday that they went with Jesus. But the bottom line for them was that the teaching of Jesus and the practice of Jesus had to be rooted in the community that Jesus built for them. This is why we esteem life groups so highly here. 
Go to every Bible study that's offered in Anchorage. Do them all. Be in a Zoom Bible study. Do one that's at midnight here that's four in the morning on the East Coast. I don't care. Pursue the Lord in those areas as best you know how. But the bare minimum that we are going to ask from you is to use the model of Jesus, to consume the teaching, to practice together, and to do that in a community that is rooted in this local church. And if not, if your primary community is somewhere else and you just like the way that I talk on Sundays, you probably ought to root yourself somewhere else. My eloquence, my insight, whatever it is you like about me, not a good reason to be a part of this church. Ultimately, I will die. I could die right now. In 10 seconds, I could just die. And if that would be the cause for you to find another church somewhere else, it might be time to just go on and consider that. I don't mean that in a mean way. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm telling you the principle in Scripture is to not try to hack God's system, but to do it the way that he's laid it out. And that would be consume the teaching, participate in the practice, and find community all in the same local church, under the leadership of the same shepherds, in the context of the same community, giving to the same positive causes, wrestling with the same broad concepts all together. That is what God has for you. The model that uh, Jesus births initially with his disciples remains intact through the life of the early church. To the point that when we arrive in Acts chapter 2 and the first church is planted in Jerusalem, 3,000 people are saved and boom, there's a church. Hope you're ready, apostles. Spoiler alert, they were not ready at all. Uh, Here's what happens. These are sort of aspirational verses for us in our life groups at True North, so I want to read them to you. Acts 2, starting in verse 41. So those who received his word, his word being God's word by way of a man named Peter, the same Peter who's got his hand on his hilt at dinner that night trying to figure out who to kill. God changes him a little bit. They were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So again, there's the priority of teaching and then practice, and practice in the setting of community. We're going to eat together. We're going to pray together. We're going to worship together. We're going to process the teaching together. This is the model. And look what happens in verse 43. Awe came upon every soul. You know that feeling you had when Allie Carlson told you all the reasons why she wasn't ready to be baptized when her husband Tom was, and you thought, that is the realest thing I've heard in like nine weeks of my life? That's the sense that we get when we're in community with each other. When we tell the truth about what we're really going through, it's effective. We're not passive to that. I don't care how cold and unfeeling you are. That does something to your spirit. It is magnetic. And this was the constant state of affairs in the early church in Jerusalem. They were in awe because of the wonders and the signs done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions, they were selling their belongings, they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they attended the temple together and they broke bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, a thing that is very hard to do alone. In your car, through the drive-thru, you're probably not that generous, you're probably not that grateful. At the table, with people, taking the excruciating amount of time that it requires to get all the dishes out and cook the food and sit together and eat and then clean up after it. That's valuable. That's what your Bible is telling you. Their hearts were generous and they praised God and they had favor with all the people because nobody else was doing it this way. We think our late modern digital landscape, the environment that we live in today is so unique. It's not. It's been changed a lot by technology. That's Andy Crouch's thesis from the book I mentioned earlier. But the way of Jesus has always been different from the way of the world. And it has always drawn magnetically people into its orbit because of the appeal of being able to be together, a thing that you are hardwired to long for. And here's what the Lord did. God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's beautiful. 
This is an amazing picture of what a church can be. And I think as I get older and older and more acquainted with my selfishness and your selfishness, it just becomes more and more amazing to me because I feel like I'm surrounded by people who probably wouldn't do a lot of this stuff. They would rather defend their rights and their personal freedoms than sell a piece of land they have and give the money to somebody else who probably objectively made a poor financial decision to get themselves into the debt that they're in in the first place. Aren't we so pragmatic that that's the first place our mind would go? But this is a picture of God's kingdom come to the earth. The early church built around the apostles' teaching, built around the practices of Jesus, prayer, shared meals, deep and abiding community. Covenant community is the context for teaching and practice. It's supposed to be. If you find that the practices in your life are not changing you, if you find that the teaching you're consuming seems to have very little real effect, it's probably because you're consuming it in isolation. So that early church is beautiful, but here's what we know. It's made up of people, and if it's made up of people, then it can't only be good, right? I mean, I know I believe everything the Bible says in Acts 2, and I'm sure that everything we read there is true, but there must be more to the story. So if you come three chapters to the right, just a little further over in your Bible to chapter 5, I think you'll see what is going on in this ideal church that we often elevate and put on a pedestal. Here's verse 1 of Acts 5. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, why would they do that? Well, we just read that the early church has this practice of selling what they don't need, bringing the money to the church, laying it at the apostles' feet, and trusting that they will give it out to the people who need it. So that's the context here. That's what these people are hoping to participate in. They sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, Ananias kept back for himself some of the profit. He brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the Bible's not trying to tell you that that part was necessarily wrong. It's not that Ananias sinned against God by not giving all of the money away from what he sold. The sin comes next. Peter says, Ananias, I love Peter, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What if you came forward for prayer at the end of a service and I was like, hey, why has Satan filled your heart with lies? You'd be like, uh, I don't know. I have something you could tell me. I don't know. So he says, Peter, it says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now Peter tells him a bunch of stuff that Ananias doesn't think anybody knows. Peter says, while it remained unsold, was it not your own land? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. I'm going to just translate for you what Peter is saying. Peter is saying, you didn't keep the money because you need money. You sold the land to score the Christian points by being here in this gathering and showing everybody else that you have money to give away, but you kept enough of the money that it didn't cost you anything. You're, you're trying to look like a person that you're not. This is the great threat of being in community. It's the thing that we're scared to death is happening and the reason why we often don't open ourselves to each other. Because we feel sure that somebody in the room might be playing the Christian game and what if they are, what would they do to us? Well, the Bible's about to tell you that that's ultimately God's business and he will handle it uh, relatively drastically. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. That's a nice way of saying he dropped dead. Yeah, he's gone. His spirit leaves his body. It's over for him. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then I love verse 6. They just have like a group of pallbearers in the back of the church. The young men rose. They wrapped him up in something, I don't know, a sheet, and they carried him out and they buried him. And that's it. And if you were to go on to read the rest of the story, his wife comes in, she tells the same lie. Peter says, I don't know who you guys think you are, trying to lie to God and fool him. And boom, she's dead too. Yeah, same group of guys come in. They pick her up, they take her out, they bury her. It would be easy to misunderstand that story to mean you better not lie to God, you better be careful. Here's the moral that I take from it. 
No matter who we are in community with, there will always be people who are there to score points. You can't fix that. You can't keep church hopping to find the place that doesn't exist. You have to find a way to deal with it because people are people. C.S. Lewis, the great writer, says this about the presence of people who maybe are less than we would expect to interact in the church. He says, we must therefore not be surprised if we find among the Christians some people who are still nasty. His word. There is even, when you come to think it over, a reason why nasty people might be expected to turn to Christ in greater numbers than nice ones. That was what people objected to about Christ during his life on earth. He seemed to attract such awful people, and that is what people still object to and always will. C.S. Lewis says, get used to it. They're going to be here. And honestly, the more mature you grow in your faith, the more you'll realize it's you. (laughs) You're the nasty person that everybody else is being loving and kind towards. So here's your fifth and last principle about community. Covenant community is worth the trouble. And there will be. It'll be stressful. It'll be challenging. You'll be an introvert like me, and you'll go, I don't want to do it tonight. Or you'll be an extrovert, and you'll be so pumped up by the end of it that your family doesn't even want you around. They'll be like, this is crazy for you. I cannot even take you to life group ever again. Or you just talk for three hours as soon as we get in the car about everything that happened. We talked about following the pain and discipline last week. This is the same concept. Where we find pain, where we find pushback, those are indicators to us that we have a weakness. And for me, an introverted person who would prefer to dominate a one-on-one conversation or have a a monologue with 200 of you from stage, I have a real weakness rooted in pride about how to engage with a small group and how to play the dynamics of that conversation. I can choose to avoid that, and I could justify it away by saying, oh, my family and I are so busy and we have meetings six nights a week to try to be your pastor. But ultimately, I would be, whatever it is that's filling my time, I would be rejecting the way of Jesus, and I just won't do that. I have to lean into the discipline of community, even though it's hard and it hurts and I don't like it. And I have to trust that God knows better than what I feel. I have to trust that. If you will do that, if you can embrace that there will always be people in church, no matter how healthy that church may be, who are there to score points, you will go through the necessary trouble and you will be changed. This is who we are. The early church is not the exception to the rule, and neither is true north. We are messy. We are the sick for whom Jesus came to be the great physician. And so ultimately, I think you have three options here today. Right? Teaching, we're cool with. Practice maybe is new, but it sounds fun, and we're excited about where that could go. We get to community, and a few of us go, I've drawn a line in the sand that I'll never cross, and I'll never be in a small group ever. So you have three options. You can reject community. You can just decide, I'm never going to participate. And at that point, you can settle to never grow past the point you're at now. And that's your choice. I think God still loves you. I think he has so much more for you than that. But if that's where you are, or if there's some steps you need to take to be ready to get into a small group and open yourself up, take the time you need to do it. That's fine. Number two, you can fake it. I think this is probably the worst option. This is the same as rejecting community. It's just more polite. I'll show up. I'll eat the food, I'll sit in the back, I won't say a word, I'm not really here for you people. I don't believe in this and I don't care about it. Number three, you can engage with the people that you've inherited from Jesus. And if you don't like them, tell them about it. Pray for it, that's prayer. Just say, Jesus, would you make these awful people, people I look forward to seeing once in a while. God, would you bring somebody to this life group who has one hobby that I have, just one person who understands what a board game is in my life, just one, right? I'm in, my life group is like an ex-Olympic athlete and a family that mountain bike all the time. And we have a lot in common, 
right? But there's times where that's a challenging thing. They all get together and they're talking about what hub's going to go on their front wheel and should they get a 27-inch tire or a 25-inch tire and what kind of grips are they going to put on it. And I have a $50 road bike that I bought from a lady whose husband died in a bike crash. That's where I got my bike from. And I'm like, I don't know any of this stuff and my bike might be haunted. I'm not sure. So I don't even know if I really want to ride with you guys at all. But I engage because I believe. Because ultimately, it's not about those people. It's not even about me. It's about my rabbi. My rabbi who has said to me, drop your net and follow. And drop your bike and follow, right? And put down your medical equipment and follow. And leave behind your dreams and leave behind your aspirations and let go of your prejudices and let your walls down and follow. And if we will do that, we will find ourselves, as the disciples often did, sitting around campfires, eating fish, listening to Jesus teach. Discussing with each other, what does he mean? Asking him, why do you tell all these stories all the time? What are these parables about? That's the context that's happening in Luke chapter 8, where we read from earlier. And what we may find is that along with all the scumbags, that's the word that I use for C.S. Lewis's nasty people, right? All the scumbags that Jesus brings into the church, they'll bring their scumbag attitudes, their scumbag ideas, their scumbag mouths, their scumbag calloused hearts, their broken minds. Very often they will bring their missing humanity with them. And together we'll find it again. We will find our humanity in our rabbi. We will find it in Jesus. We will find it together. If we embrace each other because and only because Jesus has embraced us, then we will live more and more into God's kingdom. And we'll actually see that kingdom begin to spread through the lives of each other. So I'll finish with this story. I'm a little bit over time, but I think this is a really valuable story to tell you. I think this will land and really grab your imagination. At the end of his book, Andy Crouch tells a story about two friends that he has named Dave and Mel Murray, who lived in uh, Dehradun, India, as missionaries briefly. And while living there, Mel, uh, the gal of the couple, encountered a leper colony just outside of Dehradun. They're still kind of afraid of leprosy there in a way that modern medicine has sort of debunked, but they don't know. And so there was a leper colony, and this leper colony produced some of the most beautiful handmade textiles that Mel had ever seen. They dyed them, they wove them by hand, oftentimes, ironically, many of them due to the leprosy, the way that it numbs your fingers, they just fall off. And so a lot of these people were working with like one thumb on this hand, two fingers, a pinky and a thumb on the other hand, but they found a way. And Mel is quoted in the book as saying this. She says she would intentionally visit the leper colony on her hard days at work. And when she would arrive, she says, quote, it was like a piece of heaven. It was beautiful. It was communal. It was light and bright with no heaviness. Can you imagine that? Has there ever been a group of people with better reason to get together and complain than a bunch of literal lepers, people that most of us will never encounter in our entire lives? She goes on to say this about the community that Jesus built for her and her husband in and around Dehradun. She says, we had in our community 20 individuals who were polio victims, quite a few with schizophrenia, four who were autistic, and one who was born blind and deaf. And our friends from the United States would ask us what it was like to move into a community of such great need where people needed so much from us, but that's all wrong. We needed one another if only to remind one another that we need the grace of God to offer anything to the world. I told someone that I felt like I had met Jesus for the first time there, and she became quite offended. You've known Jesus since you were a young girl, she said, and I have, but we get to know Jesus through his body. He calls us his body. Can you believe that? If we are not with those who are suffering, we are literally missing a piece of the body of Christ. I came to know more of him when I was with those who were part of his body. That's what's on offer for us. That same vision, your cell phone, your nice car, the fact that you don't have leprosy and you get to pick what you eat every day and what clothes to wear, these are not barriers to your community unless you want them to be. 
You are an eternal being. As a human, you have untold millennia left to live, and you will spend that time with somebody. Jesus' plan for you is that the process of being in community with others who are also oriented around him would not start the day that you die on earth and step into eternity, but that it would start this Tuesday at 8 p.m., or Wednesday from 6 to 8, or every other Friday from 9 to 11, or whenever you can find a group to get together with, that you would sit under the teaching, that you would walk out the practices together, and like Mel Murray said, that you would come to know more of Jesus when you are with those who are part of his body. That's the invitation. So I want to pray for you that God would do that in your life. Father, thank you for your word today, and thank you for the faithful witness of, uh, of your saints men and women who have been willing to take the plunge, the scary deep dive into community that some of us are still resisting. I pray God, uh, just from a logistical standpoint, that after preaching a sermon like this, you would equip our church to be ready to pull people into community, to have enough groups, to have enough group leaders, God. I pray that if you're stirring that in somebody's heart today, that they would respond, that they would step up and let us know, and that we would see more and more opportunities to know and be known birthed in this church. We love you, Father. We trust that your way is right, as painful and challenging as it might be, may be. I pray that today would be the beginning for some of us of our journey out of isolation and into community. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I appreciate your time this morning. Uh, because of the baptism and because of the length of time that I preached, I'm going to go on and dismiss you now. Thank you for being here. We love you guys. You can go grab your kids. They're ready for you, and we'll see you next week. Have a great week. Bye.